The gospel message, Paul defines it in 1 Corinthians 15 as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the gospel message. And uh, taking that, giving that some thought, I thought I would take off from looking at Christ on the cross. We're not going to look at the whole the whole uh, the resurrection and that part of it, but uh, just on the cross himself, what did Christ say? Uh, it turns out, if you look through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he, did, he said seven distinct things from the cross. And uh, those are th- that's what we're going to look at this morning. The, uh, you have to think, before he gets to the cross, though, Jesus, he'd gone through a night of trials, been uh, unjustly found guilty, right? The trials themselves were illegal if you study them and look at them. He had been uh, beaten and uh, terribly beaten and and, uh, abused. Uh, Isaiah says it talks about a plucked out the beard. Isaiah 52 says it implies that at the point he didn't even appear human when they nailed him to the cross. He'd been so disfigured. And so, uh, so humiliated and, and beaten. Um, when you th- when you think about it, I guess that maybe describes one way that, uh, or one reason why he was hard to recognize after the cross when his disciples came up to him and weren't quite sure who he was. But nonetheless, uh, question the first question I might ask is, what he's being nailed to the cross after going through this last 24 hours of terrible. Uh, beatings and humiliation and unjustly found guilty. If that were you, what would you feel like? What, what would you be thinking? Would, would you feel mad, angry, upset, defeated? Um, you might just think about that for just a second. Uh, and then, then we're going to look at what, what does Christ do? What did he say on the cross? What, were, what, uh, what was he thinking about? Um, if those of you take notes, I don't have any PowerPoint slides. And if you're here anticipating listening to Pastor Bill, I'm sorry. Uh, you'll have to come back next week. The, uh, but otherwise, for your notes, I'm gonna, if you want to take notes or like to take notes, I'm going to give you seven words and seven scriptural passages. Um, the first one is, the word is forgiveness, Luke 23, 34. Um, if you like, so if you want to just take notes and uh, jot those down. So what is what is Christ's first word on the cross when he after all this time? And in Luke twenty three thirty four he says, but Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. His first words after all this are a word of forgiveness. And in, in reality, what's he doing? He's praying for those who are persecuting him, right? I like, um, much of this is a summary. Uh, the lesson is, uh, that I'm t- talking about this morning is a summary out of a book by Arthur W. Pink. It's a small paperback titled The Seven Sayings of Christ on the Cross. And that's what I'm kind of... Uh, 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 outlining to this morning and using as a topic the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. In his book, Mr. Pink says, no longer could his hands minister to the sick 
for they are nailed to the cross. No longer may they may those feet carry him on errands of mercy, for they are fastened to the cruel tree. No longer may he engage in instructing the apostles, for they have all forsaken him and fled. How then does he occupy himself in a ministry of prayer for those uh, around him? Um, I'm reminded of the story uh, was told a number of years ago of a passenger ship that was sinking and it was going down apparently fairly quickly and a lady comes up to the captain and says, Captain, Captain, what should we do? And the captain says, to prayer, to prayer. And the lady looks at the captain and says, has it come to that? And, and how often is that our attitude? You know, that's the last thing we think about other than, as opposed to the first. Um, do we, is that our first response? Uh, you, you can always do something. And here he's in a, Jesus is in a ministry of prayer. Throughout his life, he demonstrated a life of prayer. He, Jesus began his ministry in prayer in Luke 3:21, and here he concludes his ministry on this earth in prayer in uh, Luke 23:34. Uh, why, why does he pray for these those around him? One, it's a little different than this up here than a Sunday school class. It's nice to have some feedback and exchange, but I know that's not quite as easy to do in this forum. But uh, one, it was prophetically uh, described that he would do this in Isaiah 53. Uh, why does Jesus say, Father, forgive them? In other passages in the Gospels, Jesus forgave the sinner, right? Why didn't he do that here? I, I like, uh, there's probably, I think there's two reasons. One, uh, Matthew 9 6, 9 6 says, Jesus had authority on earth to forgive, and we saw him demonstrate that several different places through the Gospels. But in John 12, 32, it says Jesus was lifted up from the earth. So it's interesting how accurate the scriptures are. But probably even more importantly, who is Jesus on the cross for? You and I, right? And in that capacity, he, he asked the Father to forgive them. They know not what they do. So you could, we could talk about sins of ignorance and other things like that. But I'm going to keep going. Um, someone said, under all circumstances, are we to forgive? And Luke uh, 17, 3 and 4, it implies not necessarily. Luke said, or the, the gospel writer says that uh, if a sinner, if uh, someone does something against you and comes and repents, forgive him. And if he does that seven times, forgive him. And I think it's says if he comes seven times 70, forgive him. Um, John MacArthur in his book, a commentary, says it's important to understand that Jesus' plea for his killer's forgiveness did not guarantee the immediate and unconditional forgiveness of everyone who participated in the crucifixion. He was interceding on behalf of all who would repent and turn to him as Lord and Savior. Divine forgiveness is never granted to people who remain in unbelief and sin. Man's greatest need is to have our sins forgiven, right? That's what we need first and foremost. Um, and this is the example. Uh, Matthew 5:44 says, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. So I would ask, is that our attitude for 
those who would do us unjustly is one, is one of prayer. Um, we're instructed to pray. I like Harry Ironside wrote, if we would realize that prayerlessness is as truly sin against God as cursing or swearing because it is positive disobedience to his word. That's something to think about too, I think. If we realize that prayerlessness is as truly sin against God as cursing or swearing because it is positive disobedience to his word. Um, so, so something for us to think about. Do we have that same attitude? Number two, the word is salvation. The verse is Luke 23, 42 to 43. And he was saying, this is... Jesus is on the cross, right? And he is the thief, one of the thieves on the cross. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So this is Jesus talking. There's two, he's between two thieves on the cross, right? This had also been prophesied in Isaiah 53, 12, that he'd be numbered with the transgressors. And once again, the scriptures are certainly accurate and it comes true that he's between the two thieves on the cross. How is it that one man's eyes are opened when the other thieves' eyes are closed? We see an example of God's sovereign grace. Um, this, and the, the, it's probably the, one of the most uh, dramatic examples of God's grace in all of scriptures, where this thief, um, we know in Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace, right? What could this man do on the cross? Did, did he have any good works before or after his salvation? Not really, right? There was nothing he could. Um, how can he explain that a thief took a suffering, bleeding, crucified man for God? Other than divine intervention and a, a miracle of grace that occurs at this time. The thief, though, is also a picture of you and I, we are thieves in, in many in, in many ways. The uh, Jeremiah seventeen nine says the heart is incurably wicked. Romans eight seven the carnal mind is enmity against God. <clears throat> uh, Arthur W. Pink tells a story of a man who uh, was going to a far off country and representing a company. Uh, for example, let me give you an example. If, if General Motors hired a representative to go to Japan to try to sell General Motors cars, and he went over there and was and was selling, he's supposed to be representing General Motors and, and trying to make inroads into Japanese, or you can make this whatever country you want. And, he, and six months later, you find that uh, really he was working for Toyota. What would you think of him? You'd, you'd, you'd think he was a thief, right? He was stealing from one company, misrepresenting himself. On the other hand, God has sent us into this world with talents, with gifts, uh, and opportunities to use. Do we misappropriate them? And if we do, are we thieves? Um, so unless we can see essentially a picture of us in him. The, uh, a couple other things. The thief demonstrates the repentance and faith that one needs to become saved, right? If you think about the thief on the cross... He probably demonstrated more spiritual illumination than most of the disciples at the time. 
Uh, he acknowledges that he was... Uh, well, let me go through the list here. He, he says, does not... The one thief that was saved says to the other thief, remember they were both ridiculing Jesus at first. And then one apparently has a change of heart. God touches him. And then he says, does not thou fear God to the other thief? He, he, he believes in a future life with God's retribution, apparently. He acknowledges his own sinfulness, right? He says to the other thief, you and I are guilty, but this man has done nothing. So he, he also acknowledges Christ's sinlessness. Um, he acknowledges Christ's Godhead. He says, Lord, remember me. That's also a, a demonstration of Christ's saviorhood. Remember me. He acknowledges his kingship. He says, when, I come into the, when you come into thy kingdom. And he acknowledges his second coming, when thou comest. When you think about that, that's pretty good uh, spiritual insight that he gains in a few minutes hanging on a cross looking at a bleeding, suffering, dying Lord um, do, you, do we have the same kind of insight that the thief represented uh, the, uh, someone asked the question or some folks give the perspective I guess that okay I'm, maybe someday I'll accept Jesus Christ and uh, I've got time the, look at the thief on the cross at the deathbed. He was, I believe, he was saved, um, but saw so wait and wait, wait for the, some other time in my life, and maybe later we'll do it. I'll do it. I'll accept Christ. The uh, Puritan once said regarding deathbed salvations, says there is one such case recorded that none need despair, but only one in Scripture that none might presume. So you can't. Uh, yes, deathbed conversions are real. But can you guarantee you're going to have one? Some of us watched a video a few weeks ago by Ray Comfort, and he made the comment that uh, every day tens of thousands of people die each day. Most of them are planning for next week. Um, it's, it's unexpected, and things happen that we don't anticipate. So there's no unacceptable time to come to Christ. He is ready and waiting for our response. It's much better to do it now than hope that you have a deathbed conversion. He that cometh to me, I will no wise cast out, Jesus says. Number three, word, affection. And the scriptural passage is John 19, 25 and 26. A word of affection. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but they were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now the disciple whom Jesus loved is none other than John, right? The gospel writer. That's a term that shows up several times in, that, in the gospel of John. He doesn't, talk to, he doesn't refer to himself as John. He refers to himself as John, or, excuse me, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Here, woman, behold your son. What Jesus is really doing is committing the care of his mother into the hands of the disciple John. Um, he's come back, apparently, at this point. I mean, there's lots of things we could talk about in this. And like, if you'd like to get a lot more detail on some of these and look at a lot some more insight into some of these passages, get Mr. Pink's book and, and read through it. But you could talk about Mary. 
and she's the mother of Jesus standing there. Uh, there's, she doesn't, there's no record of anything she says. The crowds are mocking. The thieves are taunting. The priests are jeering. The soldiers are callous and indifferent. And she's standing there watching her son. The, uh, it's also an example of what's the, one of the Ten Commandments. It talks about honoring your father and mother. Here he does this, even on the cross. He, commits, he commends his mother into John's care. Uh, how do we treat our parents? Do we honor them? Proverbs 23:22 says, Despise not thy mother when she is old. Um, let me uh, go to the next one. Four. Anguish. Uh, Matthew 27:46. But Jesus... Oh, excuse me. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And I'm probably butchering the pronunciation. But it says, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The climax of his suffering. He's been on the cross in the darkness, separated from his father for three hours. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here, the wrath of heaven has descended upon him. And I, you know, I suspect personally the, suffer, the brutal the brutality that he's subjected to, the beatings, the scourgings, the nailing to the cross. I mean, we can, most of us can kind of imagine us a little bit perhaps that that was, that was a horrible thing and what that might be like to go through. My personal suspicion is that was nothing compared to the last three hours that he spends on the cross, separated from his father. He, and 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew, knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Did Jesus die for your sins? Is, did he die for your sins next week? Next month? Yes, right? Does that mean that if you sin next week, we, we, we tend to think about Jesus died for our sins in the past. We don't think too much about the future. But if you sin next week, do you add to Christ's agony on the cross? I just ask that as a rhetorical question, but uh, for something to consider. Number five, the word is suffering. Uh, John 19.28 after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Says, all thing, that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. There's, there's, many, there's over 300 uh, different uh, prophecies that were fulfilled in Christ's first coming. And all, all of those prophetic things have been fulfilled I mean, we can make long lists. Betrayal of a friend, false accusation, proven guiltless, beaten and scourged, numbered with the transgressors, and on and on. There's one left that hadn't been fulfilled, and that was out of uh, uh, Psalm 69:21. They talked about him thirsting. And here he fulfills that prophecy by saying, I thirst. It's also evidence of Christ's humanity at this point in time that he has gone through ter uh, throughout his life. We see many, many evidences of his humanity. 
from his birth to his childhood and where he increased in wisdom and stature. And we find him asking questions as a boy, as a man that talks about he wearied in the body. It says he hungered, he wept, he slept, he prayed, he rejoiced, he groaned, and now he cries out, I thirst. Um, some, it's, is it a physical thirsting? I, I suspect it is. But I suspect there's also something more to it than, than that also. Psalm 42.2 says, My soul thirsts for God. Um, do we have uh, the same thirst for, for our Lord? The uh, Notice that uh, throughout Christ's life, he never performed any miracles for his own behalf. Um, he, he did many things for other people, right? But never for his own comfort or, or his own on his own behalf. He doesn't do that. But in here, here in his dying hour, uh, he's, he says, not, and over and over he said, not my will, but thine will be done. He cries out, and what do they give him? Do they give him water? No, it's vinegar, right? Or sour wine, whatever your translation says. Um, he's given vinegar and to drink. Sometimes we complain that we don't even that we only have water to drink, but on his deathbed, our Savior was denied even that. The uh, another another passage from Arthur W. Pink. He says, "Is your body racked with pain? So was his. Are you misunderstood, misjudged, misrepresented? So was he. Have those who are nearest and dearest turned away from you? They did from him." Are you in darkness? So was he for three hours. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and faithful high priest. He goes Hebrews 2.17. Um, let me go. I'm, I'm tempted to just keep going. There's many, many things one could say about some of these things. But... Uh, it's interesting that Christ cries out, my God, my God, after only three hours that I thirst. What about those who will endure it for eternity? If you think about the alternative to salvation. What did Lazarus, remember the, the rich man and Lazarus? The, that uh, story we read in uh, Luke 16, not too long ago. Laz, uh, Lazarus is in Abraham's bosom and the rich man is across a great chasm. And he asked Father Abraham to do what? Would you let Lazarus dip his finger in the water and touch my tongue for just a, a touch of water, uh, of, uh, of water? And but uh, that's that was his lot for eternity. Number six. When Jesus, uh, the word is victory. Excuse me. Passage John nineteen thirty. Victory. When Jesus therefore had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What is, what is finished? The prophecies, his sacrificial work, his suffering. In reality, the greatest triumph in the history of the universe is finished. Where God redeems mankind and redeems, redeems the world, if you will. Like I said, the fulfillment of all the prophecies are fulfilled the atonement is fulfilled. Our sins are taken away. Justice had to be done, and Christ paid for it all. 
Another word, uh, it is finished. The word finished, or it is finished, is a Greek word, tetelestai. An alternative translation, which I like, says paid in full. That is equally valid. He could say paid in full as opposed to it is finished. What is paid in full? Our sins, right? He paid it all. Is It was done perfectly, done once for all. Is there anything more you and I can do? Trying to add anything to that just takes away from what Christ did on the cross for us. There's nothing more we can do. There are several proofs that Christ, the, finished, the work is finished. See the rending of the veil, Christ raised from the dead, the exaltation of Christ seated at the right hand of God the Father, the sending of the Holy Spirit. Um, Isaiah 53, 6 says, The Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And here he, he proclaims that it is finished or paid in full. Do you believe it is the question. And have you accepted it? Uh, number seven. We're making good time. Contentment. Uh, Luke 23:46. Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Have you committed your spirit into the hands of the Father, as he did at this time? 2 Timothy 1.12 says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him. Uh, Hebrews 10.31, only, believer, excuse me, only believers are, are encouraged to commit their spirit into the hands of, the, of God. For the unbeliever, they're also going to be committed into the hands of God, but that's going to be a terrifying experience, right? Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we see the, the, Father's, the Father's hand, the heart's true haven, the answer to what man searches for is uh, through G, demonstrated through Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, some have suggested, God, what's God waiting so long for? Why doesn't he come back as the thief on the cross knew he would? But uh, our God is long-suffering, and it's not, not, uh, he's patient is really the right word. 2 Timothy 3.9 says, The Lord is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting to give each of us a chance. So the question is, where do we stand today? Do you belong to him? Have you received his salvation? Uh, are you sure? And if you are, there's one more question I think that's critical. It says, what have you done with it? If you have believed, are you misappropriating those things he gave to you and I for somewhat something else? Or are we using the gifts and talents, the opportunities that come our way for him? Um, let me finish with one, a, a short poem. He was born of a woman so that we could be born of God. He humbled himself so that we could be lifted up. He became a servant so that we could be made, made co-heirs. He suffered rejection so that we could become his friends. He died himself so that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself so that he could bless us in every way. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We just thank you for the words that uh, 
you shared with us through your son on the cross. Help us to uh, reflect on some of these things as we go out to remember him as an example and to uh, just uh, try to follow him in all that we do and to uh, commit our lives to you, Lord, as we go out and, and to uh, appropriate the things you've given to us for your glory and not for other purposes. Just thank you again for this time together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.